so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, it has been way too long uh, since I have had a chance to really do a podcast. Uh, Some of the times I've been able to maybe come down here, uh, but it's been like late at night or things in in times in which it just it wasn't convenient for me. And so I apologize to you guys for not being down here and being more proactive towards that. But I'm here now and I'm excited to go through this. This is a chapter in Luke chapter 8. That has got 56 verses to it. So this is going to be more of a storytelling mode um, in, in my teaching style. I'm not going to dissect things quite as, as much because I really don't like to break these up into two parts. But to keep it under you know, under an hour and a half, which it would be if I um, just sat and taught through everything on this one. I'm going to try to keep it under you know, 50 minutes or so for you guys. Um, but we're going to get right into this. Welcome back if you've been joining us through our Luke podcast series that... I've been um, leading us through, and and hopefully it's actually been more the Spirit leading us through. Hopefully it's been edifying and blessing to you guys and even convicting, if needs be, on that one. And um, just informative for you guys. There's a lot of stuff in these Gospels. One thing I do want to make note of is to remember that Jesus and his followers at this time are still under Old Covenant. All right? The, the, The... contract, if you will, is the diatheke is the Greek word for covenant or contract or testament. That Old Testament, that old contract is still in full effect because Hebrews 9 says that it wasn't until Christ died that the new covenant could even be ushered in. And that is vital to understanding um, the, the teaching that Jesus is giving because in many of what he talks about, he's clarifying Old Testament um, teachings to what had been misunderstood, misinterpreted, and thus mistaught to the people. And he's clarifying, not necessarily establishing things for New Covenant theology or doctrine. And so that's important to understand, and I'm sure that we'll get into some of that as we go through chapter 8. But if you have been joining us, that's been something I've tried to reiterate. If this is the first time joining us, welcome. Uh, I'm grateful for you to to tune into this, and hopefully this will be informative for you. Um, I am somebody who teaches... In, in a way that is blunt, and I'm one who teaches where I don't really hold back. And so that's my style. You're not going to get a lot of fluff. You're not going to get a lot of beating around the bush. So if that's what you're looking for, then I think you've come to the right place. If you're looking to be entertained, if you're looking to um, have your flesh tickled a little bit um, and just have a little bit of being told what you want to hear, then this is probably going to be an offensive message to you. This is not going to be a podcast that you're probably going to like, uh, but I would challenge you to go read Second Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 4 and see what godly teaching is actually going to look like, and then you probably need to start adapting to that. Um, so anyways, we're going to get right into this so that this message isn't going to be an hour and a half long. Um, so he goes on, verse 1. 
Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. We'll talk about that concept a little bit later, because I don't know how many people actually realize that a person can be, and still today even, can be possessed by multiple demons. It's not just one demon. um, And no, that has not gone away. I don't see anything in Scripture that says that demons are no more, that demons can no longer possess people. I've heard people talk about that. I've heard people who've said it. Demons are real. They still are in existence. Their time has not yet come. And they are still roaming the world under the authority of the God of this world, Satan himself. And they can possess people. I've seen it. Um, there's been times in which I've had to be part of groups that have prayed demons out of people. Um, and so I do believe that they are still in full existence. And the fact that Mary Magdalene had seven demons, we're going to learn in a little bit that, um, that actually pales in comparison to what, um, can be. All right. So he goes on. So hang with me on that. He says, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Not much to take away other than the fact that the, that there were women that followed them. They weren't leading, but they were helping. They were tending to the, the ministry of the saints, which is a vital concept for women. All right. This is one thing I've talked about at length when I went through our Titus podcast. I talked about it in Titus chapter 2. Didn't hold back on that one. I told what the actual appropriate and biblical godly role of a woman is as well as even a wife and a mother. Um, there are, are roles that God prescribes and it's not to be um, deferred to your opinion or preference. It is to be deferred to his word of what he says. And one of those... Um, is to be a minister to the saints, not in the role of leadership as far as being a pastor. That is forbidden for a woman, and it's not that women aren't qualified. It's they're not authorized by the Spirit. That's First Timothy chapter 2 would talk about, as well as in First Timothy chapter 5 and Titus 1 and First Timothy 3, in which the um, specific pronouns or specific gender words that are used there in the Greek, aner and gune, But that's not our topic. What we do know is that women were helpers and they attended to the men who were leading um, in the ministerium of the gospel unto the world. And they provided for them out of their own means. Not a whole lot to take from that. It says what it says is what it is. We're going to keep going on. He says, and when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let them hear. So, I'm not going to break it down. In that segment, because it's very clear in the very following passage that he's going to go on and he's going to explain what it is. And then we're going to get into it a little bit more. But here's what I am going to say. In Mark chapter 4, I think it's in verse 13. Let me turn to it to make sure I've got the right reference. In Mark 4.13, here's what he says. All right? Very, very a paralleled account to what's going on right here. And he said to them, talking about Jesus... Do you not understand this parable? This is the parable of the sower. How then will you understand all the parables? Jesus makes it very clear that if you don't understand this parable, 
then you won't understand any of them. All the other parables hinge upon this parable. And I'll tell you why. It's not because there's some deep meaning to this that you really just have to you know, grab before you can grab anything else. He, he actually says at the very end, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says, if you don't understand this basic principle of how you receive the word of God, if you don't understand this concept, then you won't get anything else. And it's going to explain it here in just a little bit. Um, and just real quick, I'm actually looking up a word that I wanted to see. That uh, really doesn't give me anything on it. All right, so in 9, we're going to read 9 through 15. And that's going to kind of give us a summarization of what this parable is meaning. And, and I'm going to tell you, if you don't understand it from me teaching this and breaking down even further than what Jesus did, then I'm going to question, I'm, do you have ears to hear? Has the Spirit opened up your ears to hear and your eyes to see what the Spirit says to the churches? Because I'll just tell you right now, the world can't understand the things of God. This is why 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says it in such a a simplistic way that's broken down. I want to read it for you in just a little bit. It's such a simplistic way and yet it is beautiful how, how Paul breaks this down of what we have received through Christ. Here's what, he go, here's what he says. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What's he saying? He says, look, I'm not going to be able to just look at Joe Schmo who's sitting across from the table and saying, I know exactly what you're thinking. I know your thoughts. Now I can understand those thoughts through the spirit maybe of a person through their actions because the word of God in Hebrews chapter 4 says it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So I can look at a person's actions of the fruit of their life and discern what maybe they're thinking and what their motivations are in their actions. But to actually look at them and just simply know exactly what they're thinking in that moment, he says nobody knows that except for the spirit of that person. And in the same way, he says, nobody knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. But listen to what he goes on to say. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. He says it very plainly. You've received the Spirit of God so that you can understand the depths of God's mind. You can understand his thoughts, primarily... His word, the word that he gives to us in text to be understood by the spirit who's to lead us into all truth, as the word says. We have been given the mind of Christ. We've been given the mind of the Holy Spirit, the mind of God, so that we can understand the depths of what God thinks. And he says, and I gave you free access to it. All you got to do is seek with all of your heart. Proverbs eight seventeen says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. That's the cry of wisdom. And he goes on, he says this, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You see, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He says the only way that you can actually understand this parable is to have received insight from the Holy Spirit to do so. Otherwise... You will reject and not understand this parable. Now that is an important, crucial concept to understand this. Because as he goes on in 9.15, let me read it. Here's what he says. 
When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. What does Jesus mean by this? He says, look, you have had your minds opened by the Spirit to be able to understand some of these things that I'm teaching to you. But for them, they don't. Because while they have physical eyes and physical ears, they don't see spiritually. And they don't hear the voice of the Spirit because it hasn't been opened to them. But it has to you. And for those of us who are in Christ, it's been open to us. So if you're struggling with reading his word and you're like, man, I I just don't know. I don't understand it. Let me just tell you, you're not alone. That's how it started for me. Are there still even passages that I read and I'm like, I don't fully grasp that. Yeah. But let me just tell you, when I began to, to be saturated with the word of God and intentionally, sacrificially study the word, With the motivation of saying, God, I don't want to know anything else but what your word says directly from your hand. I don't want to know what man teaches me. I just want to know directly from you what does your word say. When I began to do that and search and study three, four, five, six hours a day for probably a year or two to where I was studying that long. I mean, now it's not quite as long. I've put in a lot of time in studying his word. But when you begin to do that... God begins to fill you. When you begin to search after God's wisdom, God begins to fill you with that wisdom. And it's not a wisdom that's taught by human teachings and precepts. It's something that is taught by the Spirit himself to those who are spiritual. And so this this parable, we're going to break it down. I know I keep saying that, but some of these things are, are foundational and fundamental for us to understand before we keep going in this one. Um, so he goes on and he says let me just read it and then we'll go back and, and talk about it he says now the parable is this the seed is the word of God Okay, the seed that is being sown is the word of God it has many many facets to understanding this one but we're going to keep it basic for you Okay, this is how one will receive the word of God we have the commission as Christians to preach the word of God to spread that seed everywhere whether in season or out of season as 2 Timothy chapter 4 says Preach the word in season or out of season. doesn't matter if it looks like it's going to bear fruit or not. You go ahead and you throw that seed on that soil. If that soil looks like it is the hardest soil that's out there, your job is to sow seed because God's going to give the growth. All right? It's not your, your prerogative to determine if the soil is good enough to receive the seed. Your job is to sow it. That is it. Okay? But this parable isn't about us sowing the seed. It's about receiving and the soil type of what's going to bear the right fruit in our life and what will bear sustained fruit in our life is how we receive the word of God. That's what this is about. And how you receive the word of God, listening to this podcast even. Is your soil right? Well, you'll know by when we get to the end of this if you're going to be like, I I reject that. I will not hold to that. Let me just tell you, I'm not going to be preaching anything else other than the word of God. There is nothing you're going to hear in this podcast or anything else that will not have the backing of the word of God to any thought that I might give to you, any teaching I might say. It will have the backing of the word of God in context. I will guarantee you that. And if it's not, if for some reason I'm blinded to see something through an ignorance or whatever it might be, then I would encourage you, let me know about it. Because I don't want anything that I say on this podcast channel to be anything other than the truth of the word of God. But let me just tell you, there's a reason why truth should offend. 
is because a lot of times people will analyze things in their flesh and in their pride and they will not receive the grace of God in order to be able to discern it because the grace is given to those who are humble, as 1 Peter 5, 5, 6 says. And so anything that I say, truth, it might offend you, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Just because truth offends doesn't mean it's wrong. In fact, it's probably more so right because it offends your flesh. So let's go on. He says, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. They have heard the word of God. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Now that's a very key statement. This is the only one. There's different determinations on what these four soil types are going to represent when it's actually drawn out into the human life. But this is the one that we can know for sure was never saved. It's the one who it fell along the path and it was hardened to the word of God. It did not want to receive the word of God even one inch into its soil. And because it was hard, the devil was able to come along and snatch it away so that they may not believe in their hearts and be saved. So these, these, this first one, we know for a fact, was never saved. He goes on, he says this, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, again, it, how you receive the word of God, the soil type of your heart, it says they receive it with joy. But these have no root they believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Now, there's been debate as to whether or not this person was genuinely saved or not. Um, and, and, you know, I could probably make an argument one way or the other, but I think we still would just be missing the point. We'd be trying to, to sift through, um, you know, we're trying to sift through all the branches of the forest, but we're missing the forest itself. We're missing the main point of this. And whether or not this person was actually saved or not, what matters is, is that initially they received this, the word of God, they received it with joy. The true God-spoken word of God, they received it with joy, but in time of testing, they fell away. Now this word for fall away is not... Peripipto, which is the Greek word that's used in Hebrews chapter 6 when it says that it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who have crucified. I'm sorry. Um, it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have shared in the powers of the age to come. It's impossible to restore them to repentance again since they are crucifying the Son of God and they have fallen away. Um, you can go read to Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6. That is the word peripipto, which means apostasy. Okay, this one is aphistemi. It means to desist or to desert, to refrain or withdraw self from. So it's just simply withdrawing from or shrinking back. All right, it's, it's somebody who has essentially when the testing has come upon their lives, which we know that God says that I will test this, the hearts of the righteous. So even those who are righteous before him, even those who are saved, God will test them. Second Thessalonians talks about that same thing in chapter 1, 3 through 8, when he says that you are suffering for the kingdom of heaven. I'm paraphrasing it right now. Go look it up if you don't believe me. But he says, you are suffering for the kingdom of heaven in order to prove you worthy of the kingdom of heaven. He says, you're suffering to test you, to prove you worthy of the kingdom of heaven. So God is going to test the righteous. He's going to test your heart. 
So just because there was a testing in which they stumbled in, just because there was a testing in which they kind of shrunk back from, doesn't necessarily mean they were or were not saved. Okay? What we do know is that they received this word with joy, but then when things got really difficult, the word no longer had joy in their hearts, but they felt sorrow because of their circumstances. Let me just ask you, are you genuinely saved and have you ever found your, yourself in that situation? Have you ever found yourself in which life got so hard for you that originally when life was a little easier, you received the word with joy. You even, you even accepted teachings about suffering and that the devil's coming after you and that you would have to resist him firm in your faith and, and that he's seeking to, to steal, kill, and destroy. You, you accepted those things and you accepted the goodness of God when life was good. But then when things got really difficult... Maybe the word of God didn't have as much joy for you and you found yourself sorrowful because of your circumstances and not as joyful. Have you ever found yourself in that way? Did you kind of withdraw from that joy and the passion you had at first? Well, I think that's all that this is saying. Let's look at the third one. He says, as for what fell among the thorns, he says, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. Now this one for me is a little bit clear cut because here's the deal. Jesus himself says that you, you can't bear fruit. A seed cannot bear fruit unless that seed first dies. So the fact that this person is even producing fruit, it's just a fruit that has not grown into perfection or full ripening. The fact that they're bearing fruit means that something had to have died first, according to Jesus' teaching. So if I'm going to look at this third person, I'm going to say this third person was a genuine believer because they're actually bearing fruit. It's just their fruit does not tell us foreo. Be brought unto its full perfection or completion. Or, as the word says, maturity. Okay, This is a person who has produced fruit. It just hasn't fully ripened to the level to where it looks exactly like Jesus. Why? He gives us the reason. Because they were double-minded. Or as dupsuko is the Greek word, it means two-spirited. They were wanting to live in the God of this world's um, good graces, and they wanted to live in the God of heaven's good graces. They wanted to live according to the spirit of this world, and they wanted to live according to the spirit of heaven. And it's what James 1 warns us about, even as believers. It is possible to be a believer and to be lukewarm. Because that's, isn't that what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, the church in Laodicea? He says, it, it is possible. He says, I, be hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. And because of that, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Let me just tell you this. You can't vomit something that hasn't been ingested. The word that's used there is not spit. It is not a word that, that denotes a, oh, you kind of took a little taste of something and then you're going to spit it out because you didn't like the flavor. No, it is a violent upheaval, a vomiting of something in which has been ingested into one's belly and then it has now become repulsive and it now needs to be vomited. So this message that's being given to the church in Laodicea is referencing believers. And I think there's no different for this one. Because in Revelation chapter 3, the church in Laodicea, he says, you've become rich. You've prospered. 
You, you, you've gotten your fill of this world and you've forgotten that without me, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You forgot who you were. You looked in that mirror and you saw who you were and then all of a sudden you turned around and you forgot because you looked at the world. Kind of like Demas who was in love with this present world who served Paul for two years voluntarily in prison living there with him for two years. Paul even says he was his fellow worker or fellow soldier for the gospel. And then it says that Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. You know, the concept here is similar to what even Jesus says in Luke 21, 30, um, 34 through 36, I believe, when he says this. Let me turn to it, make sure that I'm right. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake. Notice that they're awake. And he says, I want you to stay awake. At all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. That doesn't seem terminology that's to be used for somebody who's not a believer. That seems to be terminology for somebody who is. That they are to stay awake and that they are to pray that they would have the strength or the grace To escape all those things and to stand before the Son of Man. The concept here is somebody who they're producing fruit. But what happens is, is that they begin to get lured away into the things of this world. And as a result, that fruit that started to be produced on that branch. Remember, you can't produce fruit unless the seed dies. So there had to be a death that occurred of their flesh in order for the spirit to come alive and start producing fruit in them at all. But their fruit did not fully ripen. It did not grow into perfection as the word actually states in Telus Phoreo to become perfect or unto full completion or fully ripen. They hadn't really been... uh, the, The process of sanctification was halted in their life Because they gave in to the things of this world. Listen to what Romans chapter 6, 19 um, through 22 says. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now, here's Paul's urge to the church in Rome. Present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So your sanctification, which is First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8 says, um, is the will of God for your life. He wants you to be sanctified. But it requires your being obedient to the standard to which we've been committed to in Christ. If you're not going to continue submitting yourselves to the Spirit's leading and to the Word of God in this new covenant that we're in with Christ, then your sanctification will be stagnant. And in fact, you'll be moving backwards Listen to what he goes on to say. For when you were slaves of sin in your former ignorance, when you were unbelievers, you were free in regards to righteousness. You could do what you wanted to. You didn't have a standard that you lived into. You were a slave to sin. But he says, but what fruit were you getting then? What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The things that when you came to Christ, you're like, I can't believe I used to do those things. I'm so ashamed for those things that I used to do. He says, what fruit did you get? You were self-serving. You were self-satisfying. But that didn't lead you to anything. You had a cup that you were filling in, but you didn't have the plug for the bottom of the cup, which is Christ. 
You were trying to satisfy and fill up that cup, but it kept draining out the bottom, so nothing you did ever made you feel full until Christ came to your life and you filled up with the good things of the Spirit. And then you felt satisfied, you felt full. But Christ only plugs up the things of the Spirit. He doesn't plug up the things of the flesh in your life. He says, what fruit were you getting at that time? He says, for the end of those things is death. If you're going to sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. Galatians 5, 20, uh, I'm sorry, Galatians 6, starting in verse 7, going in through 10. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. One who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life. He will not reap death. He will reap eternal life. But you have to sow to the spirit to reap that in the end. You don't believe me? Listen to what Paul says right after that. He goes on and he says this. Let me turn to it so I don't misquote it. In chapter 6, he says this. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, which is for It means of moral decay or misery in hell. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul includes himself. He's not stating this is a test of your true salvation. He says, we, if we do not give up, we will reap. If we sow to the Spirit, we will reap that eternal life in the end. If we sow to the flesh, you can be rest assured that you will reap death. And that's exactly what Romans 6 says. He says, for the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and listen to this, its end, eternal life. You see the pecking order? You obey, which leads to your sanctification. And as you continue on in your sanctification, it leads to eternal life. You don't get eternal life before the sanctification. That's something we've got to understand. And in this passage, he says, these people, they started producing fruit. They started their sanctification process. They started obeying. But something happened to lure them into the world. They began, they, they began to be those who, they went to church on Sundays, but the other six days of the week, they kind of lived of the world. They worked their 50 hours a week. They worked hard at what they did to provide all the things of the world in their life. But then they went to Sunday church and they would just sit there and they would praise God and say, thank you for your good grace. They began to live in both worlds. Let me just tell you, that's not what God wants. That's being lukewarm. And when you try to live in the flesh and in the spirit, your sanctification process will be halted. And your fruit will not ripen. That's all this is saying. Because here's the deal. It all comes to how you receive the word of God. Is it the standard to which you commit your life to truly? Or is it just one of those things that when it's convenient, you pull it out and you actually say, Oh man, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Not even understand what the passage is meaning. You'll say, that, Oh, I'm going through a trial in life. God's good. He's going he's gonna to work everything out for my good. No, that's not what it says. God says well, he will work everything out for your good if you love him and are walking in the purpose to which he has called you. If you do not love him as you ought, 
And if you are not walking in the purpose to which he has commissioned you to walk in, then it might not work out for your good. Quoting scripture out of its context is not um, advisable. And it will produce nothing in your life that it was intended to produce. The point is, you must obey to be sanctified and brought into full perfection. That, and if you don't even believe that walking like Jesus is possible, then you're already defeated and you've bought into a defeated gospel, not a victorious one. I am more than a conqueror through Christ. I am more than an overcomer through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The word itself even says that we can be like Christ. We will never surpass him. But as Luke 6.40 says, we can be like the teacher. And in fact, you're commissioned to it. So it's not okay for you not to be trying to be holy as he is holy. It's not okay for you not to strive for perfection. It's not okay for you to even believe that you're just a sinner saved by grace and that's all you'll ever be. It's not okay because 1 John 2, 6 says that if anyone says that he abides in Christ, he ought to, or it is his ophelio, his obligation to walk as he walked. And even Ephesians 5, 1 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. The reality is, is there's too much of a defeated gospel being promoted out there of saying you'll never be able to be like Jesus. That's impossible. Well, I'm sorry. My God is the one who serves in the impossible. That's where his domain is. And even Mark was at 934 or 923 that says the one who believes all things will be possible. Nothing will be impossible for him who believes. The only impossibility that's there is what God's word deems as impossible. And living like Christ is not one of them. Being restored to repentance after you've become a believer who has tasted the word of God and has shared or metekos in the Holy Spirit. You become a partner and an associate to restore again to repentance after apostatizing from the faith. That would be impossible because it says it is impossible. But living like Christ, allowing your your fruit to be brought to perfection through the Holy Spirit and your submission to him and obedience to the word of God... That's not impossible. That's actually our duty of what we should be striving for. And when you give up and you begin to live a worldly existence, you know what? You'll never get there. And if I was Satan and there was one thing that I wanted to attack, it would be the faith. Because I know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Satan knows the word. He knows what Hebrews 11, 6 says. Without faith, you you can do nothing. So that would be the one thing I would attack. And that's exactly what he's done in the church today. He's attacked the faith of what the possibilities are in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And when did we stop believing that and only started quoting it? If you don't believe in the scriptures, what are you really doing in the gospel in your life? And he goes on and he says... In verse 15, as for that in the good soil, these are the ones who, they believe in full what the word of God teaches. They're not distracted. They stay on mission. They serve as soldiers, as 2 Timothy 2.4 says. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Let me just tell you, we got way too many civilians living in the church today. 
People who are content to just work their nine to five and get their nice little house and their nice little cars and, and live it up in this life and just be about their families and just be about their job and just be about their own personal happiness. And they are not soldiers who are working for Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. In other words, you can say no heavenly minded man is going to get entangled in worldly pursuits. Because his aim is to please his general. Let me just ask you. What describes you more? Are you a civilian or are you a soldier who's on mission? Because this good soil, this good soil is not a Christian. This good soil is not just, this is the the fourth soil. This is the only one that's the Christian. No, this good soil is the one who is the Christian seeking to be like Christ in all that they do. It's the one who is on mission as Christ was on mission. And isn't it even fitting that, God's, that, that Jesus literally says that as he sent me into this world, I'm sending you. Did Jesus get entangled in civilian pursuits? I think you could read the gospel accounts and say that with a resounding and firm no. Jesus lived on mission. His entire life and existence were for glorifying God. But today in the American church, we've got way too many civilians who are living as um, perceived Christians, but not soldiers. And you might very well be an infant in Christ, as 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3 says. You might very well be in Christ, but you're an infant because you're still living according to the flesh. It's still about you. It's not about him. And let me just tell you, a soldier's life is not about himself. It's about his general. Now, I'm not advocating soldiers who fight for earthly kingdoms because Jesus himself says those who fight for earthly kingdoms, they're not my soldiers. You don't believe me. Jesus says in himself, my kingdom's not of this world. Therefore, those who are fighting for the kingdoms of this world, they're not mine. So I'm not advocating going out and, and you know, being a soldier in the American army and thinking that you're actually fighting God's battle because that's the furthest thing from the truth. What I am advocating is the principle of what a soldier does for an earthly kingdom. That should be what we do for the heavenly kingdom that we should be a part of and that we should be seeking. In Hebrews 13, I think it's in verse 14, he says, Here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that's to come. As Christians, our perspective is on things that are set above, not on things below. And if you're fighting as a soldier for an earthly kingdom, then your perspective is on an earthly perspective, a temporal perspective. It's not on God. And Colossians 3 says, if then you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on the things above, not on the things below. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Romans 12, 1 through 2 says. The point is, is that the concept of being a soldier, that's what we're after. It's one who abandons the things of this earth that other people are unwilling to abandon. And they go out and they fight for a kingdom that they're seeking to serve their general. It's just, are you seeking to serve an earthly kingdom or a heavenly one? Because I'll tell you what, my desire and my aim in this life is to be a soldier for a heavenly kingdom. That's the one I'll fight for. And it's one that involves truth and the glory of God. 
and the cross and the gospel of my Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for sinners so that even as a result of my testimony in this life, people may say that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me through seeing me and how I live for them. That people could in the end say that even while I sinned against him, Dwight gave of himself for me. He loved me well. And I'm not always the greatest at that, but my aim is to be like my Savior and my Lord. What's your aim? And you know, I, I, I think we're going to read this next part. And we'll just break this one up into two sections because the importance of understanding the parable of the sower is one that is... Um, as I said, it's paramount. It is foundational and fundamental to establishing the faith in your heart. Because if you cannot receive the word of God humbly, then you cannot have the grace of God. And in that capacity, there is an aspect in which grace is unmerited, but, but it, that's not its definition. Man, don't let pastors tell you that, that the, the best definition of grace is unmerited favor. Because that's not the case. Is there a shade of it that has unmerited favor to it? Yeah, I didn't do anything for God to extend it to me. But for me to receive it to my account, I must do something. How many of you guys knew that? Here, here we go again. Are you willing to receive the word of God? Because in Hebrews chapter 13, listen to what he says. And I'm going to give you in 1 Peter chapter 5 as well as an even more so a proof text on it. But he says this. Um... Oh, no, I'm sorry, chapter 12. No, where is it? Why, where am I thinking of it? It is 12, yeah. Here's what it says. Um, in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, let me ask you this question. How could anyone fail to obtain it if it was solely and, and unconditionally determined by God who gets it and who doesn't. How could anyone, how could I even play a role in making sure no one fails to obtain it? If grace is solely unconditionally and unmeritedly given by God to man and there's nothing we can do to earn it or to receive it, then how can I have any part to play in somebody receiving it or failing to receive it? And yet scripture says what it does. See to it as a Christian that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So how can you fail to obtain the grace of God? Walking in pride. We did nothing to have the grace of God extended to us through Christ. That was God's choice. But we can do something to prevent it from being applied to our account. And here's what 1 Peter chapter 5 says. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the undeserving. Is that what it says? To, to the ones who don't deserve it. To God gives grace unmeritedly, unconditionally. No, it says this. God gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So you have an opportunity to actually refuse God and His grace by walking in pride. And this is written to believers. The only ones who actually can choose to clothe themselves with humility by the grace of God and the Spirit of God in their life. 
That might be a new concept for you, but again, how do you receive the Word of God? Are you going by the Word of what man has taught you all these years, so you reject the Word of God because it's uncomfortable, because it requires something of you, because it sacrificially makes you have to think differently than what you've always thought? Or are you that good soil who's going to receive the Word of God and let the Spirit produce fruit in you that you couldn't have produced in and of yourself? And so we're actually just going to stop right there and just do this as part one because of the importance of it. And I'm already at, you know, 43 minutes. So we're going to stop there. And even though I don't like to do it, this is where the Spirit's led. I was, had every intention of trying to go through this quickly. But God had other plans. And again, it even goes into that concept of I had the plans to go through 56 verses to get done with this so that I didn't have to break this up into two parts because I just didn't like that. That was my preference. And yet, in the course of it, did I humble myself before what God wanted me to submit myself to so he could achieve his agenda instead of me achieve mine? That's humility. And that's what allows for the grace of God to be manifest in our life. And hopefully his grace was present in this podcast in such a way in which you receive the word of God with a good soil. So that he can grow in you and sanctify you and give you fruit in your life that leads to eternal life. Anything short of that, you might still be in the faith. You might still be a Christian. But if that word of God is being sown with competition... We'll call them thorns or rocks. If that word of God is sown in your life with competition, then you'll never get to where Christ wants you to get to. And so my challenge to you is to let the Spirit search your life and and see, are there rocks? Are there thorns? Are there things that need to be pruned in your life or dug up and removed? Because the Spirit of God is willing. The flesh is weak. And that's why he says that, Paul talks about, he says, I die every day. I, I crucify my flesh every day afresh. Every morning I wake up and I, I had to say, today I live for Christ and my flesh is dead. That's why he says, I crucify myself daily. I die daily. Every single day. And even Jesus says, if you want to follow him, in Luke 9, 23, we'll get there eventually. In Luke 9, 23, he says this, if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and pick up that cross daily and follow me. You want to imitate the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the one who came and gave his life in perfect love, but in perfect truth, the one who is full of grace and full of truth. If you want to imitate him, then that means that you must put to death the thorns and the rocks that are in your soul. And you must do it daily in order to imitate him. What a privilege we have, as John 10 would even say, that we have the privilege to hear his voice. We have the privilege to follow after him. We have the privilege to know him. But whether or not those three are true in your life is up to you. Because we've been given access to those three. But whether or not they are true in your life and you hear his voice, it depends on if you decluttered your mind. If you know him as he, as he ought to be known by you, the gnosko, that term that just simply means in a, a term of endearment, a term of intimacy, if you know him as he ought to be known, it depends on if your affections are set on him. And if you um, follow him as he ought to be followed, if you imitate him, it depends on where your passions lie. 
And so my point in all of this is, just to kind of summarize this, take care in how you receive the Word of God. Because it is the determining factor for what Christ will produce in you. Y'all be blessed.